and welcome to Edie's Sustainable Business Covered podcast. I'm Edie's senior reporter, Sarah George, and it's great to have you along for this episode, which is our 90th episode in this series. I'm recording this episode from my home office in West Sussex today, which is, to be honest, where I feel like I've been living for the past few months. Um, It's still going to be a few weeks before I can get back into the office and reunite with our content editor, Matt, and our content director, Luke, in person again. So it's just me for this episode. But that's okay because I have three great exclusive interviews with guests to bring you for this episode. As we're recording less than a week after Earth Overshoot Day, this episode is going to have a circular economy theme and our speakers come from industries which have been in the spotlight over resource use in recent times, namely electronics and electricals, consumer goods products and packaging manufacturing. For those who aren't aware of Earth Overshoot Day, it's the date in the calendar by which humanity has used all of the planet's natural resources for the year, as calculated by Global Footprint Network. Systems of production and consumption have been as such that the date has been marked since 1971 and has moved forward every year since, meaning that our consumption of resources is accelerating far faster than systems of recycling, reuse and repair. Except for 2020, because this year saw the date pushed back by around three weeks. But the analysts at Global Footprint Network aren't attributing this to a step change in action from business or governments. It's solely to do with the pandemic and the impact that lockdown had on business. It's clear that actors across the private and public sectors still have a lot more work to do to create a fully circular economy and play their part in creating one planet compatible systems. Now they also have the added challenge of dealing with the economic and social fallout of the pandemic too. The picture may seem bleak, but there's an opportunity here for organisations of all shapes, sizes and sectors to drive progress across the environmental, economic and social agenda simultaneously, which I hope this episode will highlight. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our first guest for this episode, who is Ball Corporation's Chief Commercial and Sustainability Officer, Kathleen Petrie. Ball is one of the world's largest producers of glass and aluminum packaging, and is a strong advocate for product-to-product recycling. In our discussion, Kathleen and I discuss the challenges and opportunities of closing the loop on packaging and the ways in which commercial success and environmental sustainability can be paired up for good. So here is our interview in full. So Kathleen, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, Anytime. And I can see that you're working from home like I am. Um, at the moment. So how have you and your team been been working recently? You know, it, it definitely is an interesting and, and challenging time. We have uh, the vast majority of our employees work in, in our manufacturing plants, and they were deemed essential workers and have been going in every day uh, during this uh, pandemic. And then those of us who are office employees uh, have been at home. And so it's been interesting to adapt to that but I think we're doing remarkably well. No it's good to hear I'm, I'm sure that a lot of people are getting into the swing of things right about now um, and it'd be good to hear a bit more about your role and your career as well because I think this is the first time we've had you on. It is. Yeah um, R- Ramon is a really regular feature on our podcast and at our events anyone who listens to and reads us will know um, who he is but it would be good to hear a bit more about yourself. Sure. Thank you. Uh, so I've been with Ball for 17 years. The first uh, 11 of that was in our aerospace business. So we have a business where we build weather satellites and do missions for NASA, et cetera. So I spent my first 11 years there. 
Um, and then the last six, I've worked in various leadership roles um, for Ball Corporation and, and now Global Beverage Packaging. So my current role is a little bit unusual because it, it pairs uh, the sustainability role with our sales role. So I'm in charge of sales for the company and also for sustainability. And we've put those two together because we think sustainability really is at the heart of the value proposition that we can bring to our customers. And so our sustainability strategy is completely tied to our sales strategy. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. We hear a lot about embedded sustainability in in theory, but this is an example of how that's really happening for you guys, right? Yeah, and it's a transformation for us. You know, prior to my current role, sustainability had been a corporate function, looking a little bit more at it from a license to operate or corporate reputation standpoint. And so shifting it into the business and aligning it with our sales strategy is really an an evolution in how we're thinking about sustainability. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Well, I'm sure that will be really interesting for a lot of people um, listening. But obviously, this is an episode about materials Mm -hmm. and about the circular economy. And we're on a call today because Ball has just released a life cycle assessment around packaging, and it's openly available online now and specifically it looks at the most commonly used materials and their life cycle impacts as beverage materials so that's aluminium pet cardboard um and and glass um and anyone that's been following this conversation for the past few years will see that a lot of analyses just finish at plastic has the lowest carbon footprint so we're not going to change it And that's the end of the analysis. So it would be good to hear about what's different about this analysis and why it has a different conclusion. Yeah. So part of what we wanted to do is is just as you said, a lot of the studies that come out don't really progress the conversation and they don't really help any material or customer understand what they need to do to make a difference if they're interested in doing so. So part of what we've done with this is to take a really different approach. So most LCAs right now don't really take into account circular elements. They don't apply real recycling rates. They don't consider recycling losses. Um, they don't consider how different materials either degrade or not uh, over multiple cycles. Mm-hmm. And so the, the LCAs, most of them today, take a very narrow focus and they look only at carbon. Um, and they don't really give enough insight to, to make any different decisions. So what we wanted to do was take into account circularity um, as a key factor in, in the results. And then we also chose to use current publicly available data uh, for right. each of the substrates. So it gives us a little bit more of a baseline about how does each substrate perform in the real world today. And then we have some sensitivity analysis, which allows any stakeholder to do assessments and say, what would the impact of increasing uh, recycle content mean for plastic or glass or carton board? And, and lets us all kind of understand what the degrees of, of improvement could be. One of the things that I think was the most interesting for us is, you know, when we, when you do the survey taking that into account and you see the high recycling rates and high recycle content of aluminum cans, they do actually perform much better than a lot of what the traditional um, LCAs would indicate because there many of those assume virgin aluminum, which isn't really, you know, it's not a it's not a valid assumption for what's actually put on the market. 
great. And I'm sure there are a lot of people out there that are looking to quantify the environmental footprint of their packaging or to reduce it or to fine tune that data. So what have been some of your learnings from from this LTA process? Yeah, so a couple of the things. Um, one is we wanted to look across geographies mm-hmm. and try to look at what are these trends overall. And, and, and it gives us some interesting insight actually into the circumstances and systems in each country and, and how they drive that. So, so I think that's one. The other thing is really about taking a more holistic view and being willing to be really transparent about the process that we used, the data that we used, the assumptions that we used and, and open that up. And so this is really intended to be um, something that could be used by industry overall, um, not just something to promote one substrate over another or to defend one substrate over another. It's really intended to be a suggestion from us on, on a new way to look at, at how to do LCAs. Mm-hmm. No, I assume there will be people out there that might be skeptical about these researchers, especially when there's a company name on them that they would just come to that sort of conclusion. But this genuinely is an open source tool. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, and then just just more broadly, there's also an open source industry framework for the circular economy in Bull's latest sustainability report, which came out recently, um, which I thought was really interesting and is probably done on a similar line of thought. Um, so I was I was wondering sort of how the decision was taken to open source that and what you think needs to happen now to make sure that the circular economy is scaled up. Yeah, so it's interesting because, you know, in the last couple of years, I think we've seen each substrate and each company take in some cases what seems like more of a defensive posture. And one of the things that we wanted to do is just say, you know, let's take a step back. And let's look at this from a system level and let's really be honest about what we think would make a difference and and how we think we should all think about um, whether it's packaging design um, or what does real circularity mean. And so this is a little bit of a departure for Ball because we're we're um, leaning much further forward on some goals and thinking that maybe feel really ambitious or, or different than what we've done in the past. Um, but I think it's actually a time to, partly because of what we're seeing with the um, packaging waste crisis, but also even even with the pandemic, it's a great time to kind of take stock and say, are our standard ways of working serving us well? Are they actually moving us forward in the way that we all want to move forward? And and so at Ball, we've said, no, we want to lean forward more. We want to be more ambitious. We want to have a voice earlier on in the process. And, and you know, people can, we can debate and discuss and maybe in some cases disagree, but but let's put something forward uh, that's a, that's our view of the world. And in have you had any discussions about this with sort of external organizations have you seen that want to lean forward and to do things a little bit differently from from the people that you interact with yeah absolutely and you know this is another thing that i has been a real focus of ours in the last couple of years is this concept of stakeholder engagement and talking with ngos talking with our customers um through trade associations working with our competitors and suppliers and really understanding you know 
how do these systems work? What are the barriers? How can we work together? And and I think through that process, you know, we've just come to a realization that we need to do something really, really different. And and we're willing to to step out a bit, if you will, and and to try to move that forward. But the step out is is informed by a lot of those discussions with you know government officials and NGOs and and also even some consumer research and understanding you know how do consumers think about these issues. Mm-hmm. And I'm right in thinking here that this isn't just in the U.S. is it? Because Ball has a really big presence in Europe too. And South America. I mean we. We are the largest manufacturer of aluminum cans in the world, and, and the North America, Europe, and South America are our largest markets, although we do also have a business in, in Asia. But we are taking a global look at this and, and, and examining um, the markets and the, the collection structures and, and how circularity is enabled or made possible in each region, and are there things that we can learn from one another. Mm-hmm. Great. I think that comes back to what you were saying earlier from your learnings. If I could summarize, it it sounds pretty much like um, be transparent and be context based, too. Yes. Yes. You know, there's an element here where it's okay to be theoretical in some cases and and say, you know, for example, we want to compare virgin plastic to virgin aluminum. And that is interesting work. But at the end of the day, if we don't have things that say, okay, that informs a decision I'm going to make today. I know as the head of sustainability of all really how aluminum performs and what I need to do to make it better. That to me is the most interesting thing. And so having it based in a real world context and then doing some, you know, analysis to say, if we could achieve these two or three things, what could the future look like? For me, that's, that should be what's most interesting to sustainability professionals. I'd say necessary as well as interesting, probably. We we always get told that we're running out of time um, to do this right. So if the decisions are based on um, theoretical information at present, I'm presuming that in some cases it might be too late. Yeah, great point. Not to put any pressure on anyone listening. (laughs) A little pressure is a good thing. It's good. (laughs) Great. Well, I think that's all the questions we have time for today. But thank you so much for coming on for the podcast. Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate you inviting me. Thanks once again to Kathleen for dialing in for this episode and sharing her insights. She's actually based in Colorado, so it was a case of my last call for the day being one of her first in the morning. What I took away from our talk is that every material has an impact, and it's important to consider real-world context to ensure that you measure and reduce that impact in a meaningful way. While Ball Corporation has largely avoided the fallout of the Blue Planet 2 effect and the so-called War on Plastics, having sold its plastics business back in 2010. It's important that businesses which do use plastics are involved in circular economy conversations and movements too, whether that results in them using less plastic, no plastic, or just designs which are more reusable or more recyclable. To that end, the next interview for this episode is with ST's UK Environment and Retail Compliance Manager, Joe Pybus. If you're not familiar with the name ST, you're probably familiar with its brand names, like Tenor, Bodyform, Plenty and Cushel. ST is committed to achieving 100% recyclable packaging made from 85% recycled or renewable materials by 2025. The company is also working to reduce the environmental footprint of its products by 33% by 2030. In this interview, Joe provides an update on progress towards these goals 
and insight into how lockdown has affected plastics actions and opinions. So here's my interview with Joe in full. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Joe. How how are you doing? I'm great, thank you. I have to say I'm looking forward to the kids going back to school. I think that will be uh, beneficial for all of us, but we've been keeping healthy and that's the main thing. Great. I'm sure there's a lot of people listening that um, that can relate at the moment. Um, and Joe, I think it's our first time having yourself on, on the podcast, so it would be great to let our readers know a bit more about who you are and what you do. So if I could hear a bit more about your role at SET and your remit there and how you work within the broader team, that would be fantastic. Okay, so I'm essentially the sustainability manager for our UK and Irish business. And in a nutshell, that means that I work to deliver our sustainability objectives. And that means ensuring that we're consistent and thorough in our approach across all the different parts of our business. On a day-to-day basis, that can pretty much involve anything from contributing to policy development, mm-hmm. working with trade associations, uh, monitoring and acting on trends that we see in our external environment, to working internally on sustainability projects and initiatives that we're working on, or meeting customers and, and, and actually educating and sometimes challenging our, ourselves internally as a business. Great. So I'm sure your to-do list is really short then. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Great. Um, And I know that ST got in touch with me for this particular podcast due to a recent survey um, that polled 2000 adults in the UK. um, And it found that that eight in 10 of us think that the environment is more important as a result of the pandemic and the lockdown and that they're willing to keep up behaviour changes that are more environmentally friendly as lockdown eases um is is this the result that you expected to to see joe and with with that in mind what does that sort of result leave for for businesses in in your sector um i i think everybody would have been forgiven if the environment had taken a bit of a back seat and everyone had focused focused on health during the the lockdown period but i think it's really highlighted the sort of intrinsic relationship between our health and and the environment and nature around us um, were the results unexpected? Um, I don't think so, because they're actually, for me personally, they really chime with, with what I experienced. Um, at home with four of us, for, for me, food waste was was a, a big thing because we, we eat a lot and, and obviously the supermarket shelves were, were bare for a period. Um, but for other people, it meant that they might recycle more, they might use fewer single-use items. And like most of the people we spoke to, it was because I had more time. And I think one of the challenges will be as we, we continue to have less time again is encouraging people to be able to carry on with that behaviour. Mm-hmm. So actually, I think that, that leading on from that, the imperative for businesses is that we've a real opportunity to push on an open door, if you like. But to do that, we need to make it as easy as possible for consumers to be sustainable and we have to make it convenient. Convenience can have many guises from from being credible um, to how you design your products and source them right through to people being able to recycle packaging easily at home, for, ex- for example. And we have to be really simple and consistent, I think, in the way that we communicate with people. Whilst some of that is in our gift to, to do a lot of it actually needs the whole value chain to work together. And I think that's one real learning from this. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, you say that this is an open door, but it's also a door with a lot of confusion behind it. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, so some more stats from, from the survey for people that might not have, have seen it. So more than half of the respondents, 51%, said they're confused about how to be sustainable. And two-fifths said that they sometimes find the topic of sustainability um, overwhelming. And a particular issue here was about buzzwords um, or jargon and and how to define them. And you touched a bit there on what what businesses can do. But do you have any more information here and especially about how to um, avoid greenwash, for example? So I've recently been doing a lot of work on the circular economy and I have seen some businesses just put, put the word circular on anything they want. Yeah. And, and I mean, firstly, it's often not people with with the expertise who develop the claims. So so one thing we've been making sure is is we educate our, our employees and we make sure that people know to, to check with sort of people who will know before they make any claims. You know, there are sort of standards out there. I think it's um, ISO 14021 that's for self-declared environmental claims. But no one's going to go and get a whole standard out every time they want to write something on packaging. But you could look to distill them into some simple ground rules that you could use and, and principles as a starting point. Um, secondly, sustainability is, is really complex, so it's important to keep everything very simple with your communications. For example, we've translated our corporate strategy into four R's for local communication, and that's all about reducing, reusing, recycling and being responsible. That means that all of the projects and the claims that we will undertake in this arena will need to deliver against one of those objectives. And that will help make sure that all of our sustainability claims are, are very measurable and verifiable. Um, finally, our survey told us that there's sort of over 40 percent of the respondents look for third party sustainability endorsements. Right. And there are lots of credible third party certifications out there that you can use, particularly in the in the sort of the realm of sustainable sourcing of raw materials like FSC and, and PEFC, for example. So that's another really good way for, for businesses to, to to look to give credible claims to their products. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's interesting on the R's. I know Tesco's are using a number of R's and I've got a number of things in my fridge that have <laughs> or two <laughs> written on them. So there, there has to be something to it, right? I, I, I think so. I think um, the R's are really simple and actionable. So we, we've translated our sort of corporate strategy, which isn't always as, as easy for people to immediately get their heads around into a communication strategy that we can use locally that'll make sense whether we're talking about it internally or whether we're talking about it externally when when it gives people actions that they can also do to be more sustainable. And I was looking at some of the initiatives that ST is taking under the the R's and some of the targets are 100% recyclable packaging, um, using 85% renewable or recycled materials, and those targets are both set for 2025. Um, and some of the more innovative things that are happening to meet some of these targets are that I know that ST is looking at wheat and straw and recycled coffee cups, um, as well as recycled plastics. Um, I know that obviously pre-pandemic, a lot of consumer goods companies will have been looking at changing materials or meeting percentage targets so it would be good to get an update um an update on on progress um right well the wheat, wheat straw project is due to be operational in 2021 so 
So we're, we're working hard to, to deliver that. Um, our coffee cup program has been slightly impacted by lockdown. Obviously, lots of coffee shops have been closed and people carry on working from home. So there's fewer coffee cups out there for us to recycle, but we're, we're recycling those where we can. And in terms of packaging, um, in 2019, we achieved 60% renewable and recycled materials in our, our, our packaging. So we're, we're making good progress towards achieving that target um, and we've already progressed a number of changes that we, we'd already planned and trialled this year ahead of, of lockdown, such as reducing the amount of film we're using in certain Plenty and Cashel lines and, and adding renewable plastic into our body form packaging. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the things now that need to happen to make sure that the opportunity comes about in the coming years I know that from talking to other companies that are sourcing renewable or recycled materials you need new collection infrastructure you might need to change manufacturing you you might need to change um, design I don't know if you can give away anything about about the plans in these areas I mean yes you've talked about um, packaging targets and achieving those and infrastructure so I think that's a, a, a real example where we need joined up thinking to um, to, to drive those changes and you know there's no point in us having a recyclable packaging with recycled content target if we haven't got the infrastructure and consistent systems of collection in place to allow us to to, to deliver that um, so you know we're really keen to work towards achieving and goals like that um, sources of recycled material you know we continue to need to find try and find new new sources how will availability of recycled fiber change um, as behaviors change and people spend less time in the office and that's where we try and look ahead with things like wheat straw where half of the world's wheat straw goes to waste um, to, to use that in products and also initiatives like talk paper circle where we're collecting our own waste back from from airports to be able to recycle back into our own products. So it really is kind of shifting the way you're thinking about things to find new sources of of materials. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And we've we've talked a lot here about behaviour change, but if there's something else that's really prominent in the conversation about resources in pandemic is just consumers holding brands to account. Um, and this was evident in the survey as, as well. As you say, people have more time on their hands to look into these things. Um, so perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that a third of the people that got back to ST in the survey said that they want brands to be more transparent on sustainability. Um, and one quarter said they were pretty distrusting of sustainability claims. They said that um, they agreed with the statement that some brands are actively trying to deflect the conversation away from their um, environmental impact. And for ST and other brands in the healthcare sector, I know there's been a lot of activism and consumer talk about plastics and that this might have changed in, in the pandemic. Um, so it would be good to get any any learnings from from that situation, because I'm sure we'll have some listenings that are dealing with with that themselves. Um, yes, we have been challenged on plastics. And at that point, you, you do have a choice. You can engage with those challenging you or you can choose not to engage. And um, and we, we chose to engage because actually, you know, we're very proud of the business that we have and what we've achieved. But also we accept that, you know, we're on a journey of continuous improvement and, you know, we may never reach the end destination there. And I think once you get your head round that, it's much easier to embrace challenge because you know it's there to help you understand and to help you progress. And and as you said, the the issues 
that are being raised are, are very mainstream issues now. They're not going away. They're in the public conscience. They're in the media. They're on the political agenda. And, and actually, we need to face into that and, and, and welcome constructive dialogue with, with all the different stakeholders that are involved. So, for example, yes, we've, we, Ella Daesh, for example, um, asked to meet us and came in to see our body form team a few months ago. And she does challenge us, but, you know, that can be a good thing. And, and equally, it gives us the opportunity to explain our journey and explain the things that we have done and, and why we've, we've been doing what we've done and, and why change takes time because change doesn't necessarily happen overnight. There is a, a big picture that we need to consider alongside focus areas. So that really helps us avoid any unnecessary misunderstandings. Yeah, no, Ella pops up on my Twitter timeline every few weeks <laughs> or so. Um, and most of the time it's good news. So-and-so has agreed to um, meet with me to talk about ending period plastic. But when it's a company that's repeatedly denying that request, as you say, it's just so much more visible when she yeah. says that a company won't won't meet her then that's going to stick in the minds of the thousands of people that follow her yeah um, and obviously seeing as we're at home I'm imagining that a lot more conversations have been digital about this as as well uh, yes um a lot has a lot has gone online and I, I follow Ella on Instagram and I see that she's still very very active and it's 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 an important discussion and an important debate and one that we will happily continue to to have Great. Well, Joe, I think that's all the questions that we have time for today, but I'm sure we'll catch up again soon. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks once again to Joe there for taking the time to dial in. If you'd like to read more about the coverage of the survey that we've been referencing in that discussion, you can Google Essity One Poll, one poll being all one word, to find out more. Last but by no means least, we're turning to a circular economy for electricals and electronics. E-waste is the world's fastest growing domestic waste stream. According to the UN, 21% more e-waste was generated in 2019 than in 2014. This is despite the fact that most electronics and electricals have components which are recyclable, like metals and plastics, and or high value, like precious metals and minerals. To find out a bit more about why this issue is happening and how it can be tackled, I dialed CDSL's Managing Director, Andrew Sharp. CDSL is one of the UK's leading sellers of spare parts. It owns brands like eSpares and Partmasters. Um, its whole business model is centred around helping individuals and organisations to repair their own appliances rather than throwing them away. And it does this through an online advice centre featuring how-to videos as well as through the parts that it sells. Andrew speaks during our interview about the opportunity to be had in service-based business models and consumer engagement and education. He also gives his views on how other parts of the value chain for this sector, from designers and procurement teams to waste management firms and policymakers, can take action. So here is that talk in full. So thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today, Andrew. How are you doing? Uh, I'm, uh, well, thank you for having me. I'm absolutely uh, I'm in a great place. Thank you very much. <laughs> Fantastic. And it's, it's great. Back into an office, actually, uh, which, which doesn't happen very often. But... No. So when, when did you and your team start going back to the office? We, our, uh, well, our office closed down for about six weeks, but our offices host about 300, 300 staff. And we have a maximum of 50 at any one time in there now. Okay. So, we all rattle around um it's 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 odd to even bump into anybody these days it's a bit it's a bit weird mm -hmm. 
And how, how were you working when it was lockdown and when the offices were closed completely? So uh, I've, we've got a distribution centre which is based just down the road from where we are here. So we've got a 200,000 square foot um, uh, centre down there, which um, I was probably spending two days a week from there um, because I'm, I'm a bit old school and working from home was always going to be a big challenge for me to get my head into this is this is the new norm so but we've done it and um it's it's very odd sat there having a meeting while your son is sat next to you uh having a zoom uh, maths lesson and keeps prodding you for answers and how do i do this and your other son who actually also works in the business is prodding you and asking you about other things it's it's a really weird environment but it's one that we've all had to adapt to ultimately Mm -hmm. yeah of course it's it's great to have you on for an interview even if it is under these um circumstances and i think this is the first time we've had you on for for um a recorded interview so for the benefit of the listeners it'd be great to hear a bit more about your role and a bit about about cdsl for those that aren't familiar okay cool well uh i'm andrew sharp i'm the ceo here at uh, cdsl um i've been here now for 26 years, um, joined as uh, a finance director a long, 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 long time ago. Um, but CDSL is all about supplying spare parts, consumables, etc. Um, it started doing that to the, the trade 50 odd years ago, back in 1969, and uh, more recently we've uh, we've moved into that online arena. So um, we acquired eSpares back in 2011. And what, we, what we've really done is we've taken the whole uh, fix it first uh, our buzz phrase to try and empower consumers to actually have a go at fixing your appliance before throwing it away and, and buying another. Because what we often find is that, you know, the videos that we give people access to often mean that they don't even need a spare part to unblock a pump or um, and because of often repair costs are fairly high people would have just thrown away an appliance unnecessarily and gone and purchased a new one so really believe we empower people to to repair products Mm -hmm. and what what sort of trends have you seen as a result um, as a result of lockdown so I've seen headlines myself and I'm sure a lot of people have about more people having clear outs and dumping their stuff um, because they can't access services like repair and they've got a lot of time on their hands but at the same time I see a lot of pa- um, panel discussions about oh um, we've learned so many DIY skills and we've learned that ultimately we don't need as much stuff and I'm going to cut back on my consumption um, when all this is said and and done so what what sort of trends have you seen throughout lockdown yourself well if if i look at just the amount of visitors that um have, have, have been hitting our websites and we've got a number of websites not only across the uk but across europe as well mm-hmm. but we have been seeing over a million visitors a week which just to contextualize that that is an uplift of 30 plus percent uh, visitors and it started literally as lockdown happened but it's continued as well because I think people have seen the benefit of actually having a go to repair something themselves. So we did see a massive uplift in some of the things which 
although it's a repair, it's not really a technical repair, cooker jobs mm -hmm. and um, just the things that people have tolerated. And as they've been stuck in their home over the whole of that lockdown period, people are looking for things to do just to occupy their, their mind. And I find myself doing it at home as well. And um, so what we're seeing is people, you know, going around their house and, you know, a, a knob for a cooker is, it's only a couple of quid. Actually, it's quite satisfying when, not, when you can take your pliers off the, uh, off, off that, off what was left of the knob and, and, and have a, a fresh shiny knob on there. Um, so we have seen a, a, a massive migration across to people having a go. I'm hoping it's habit forming that people will have a go at trying to repair something first before they then consign it to the tip or or whatever it's, there's, there's been so much wasteful activity over over the years in terms of um, what we do with appliances I think the question now is just whether that will stick and it's the same with a lot of behaviors as well absolutely and I think you know there's we are in a recession now and a recession obviously means that people are a lot more conscious in terms of making larger purchases. So I think if that continues for a while, the recession, um, that this will be habit forming that people will have a go to try and repair stuff. I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's easy to fall back to our own old ways of, of just going and buying a new appliance, etc. I'm hopeful that, um, people will see things differently moving forward. Fingers crossed. Absolutely, absolutely. I suppose uh, the, other, the other piece is around um, the, the, yeah, those repair cafes that were out there, et cetera. Hopefully they will, they will be back operating um, and people will perhaps be more inclined to have a go at those jobs that they perhaps wouldn't have tackled initially. Um, as well, perhaps, you know, a lot of things, you know, the videos show you how easy it is to change a door seal on a washing machine or, a, uh, you know, an interlock on a, on a tumble dryer, etc. Yeah, it's pretty obvious that education and access to parts are a really big, important part of a circular economy for electronics. But obviously, it has to be part of a wider cycle. Um, and it's clear how CDSO is helping at that particular part in the chain. But are you seeing problems elsewhere? So, for example, in design or in recycling infrastructure or, or policy, for example? I think, well, there's, design is a big one because manufacturers are making products more complex. That's without a shadow of a doubt. And certain manufacturers, in, well, if you need to repair a module on a washing machine, you will need the software that's that's wrong because it's prohibitive to uh, the consumer that can't afford to get a repairer out that, that that is competent enough to repair their product themselves it's preventing them from from having a go effectively so that that is an issue um if we if we look at um government legislation I mean, fly tipping went up 300% during lockdown. And the problem is there's not, there's not enough routes to... The, the local tip is closed. I use the analogy of just think about somebody, somebody living in a, in a, in a, in a bed sit in, in a city centre, not a lot of room in there. Their washing machine is broken. If they don't repair it themselves, if they do buy a new product and 
they haven't paid to have the old one taken away. They're stuck with a product in the middle of, it becomes the centerpiece of their lounge effectively because they've got, they've got no way of disposing it, of it. And I think one of the things I'd, I'd like to see, and I think, you know, government can play a part is that, you know, retailers, they, they do have to incorporate into the cost of it, the disposal of the old product. Um, and, you know, we would get away from this, the fly tipping and the, 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 the dumping that happens of product. And if I look at some of the retailers have taken, you know, they've, they've taken a good initiative in here. Um, one of the major, major uh, online retailers of, of finished appliances, um, they will uplift your product and take it to a, a recycling centre. We actually supply that recycling centre with spare parts. So they actually recycle the product and um, fit the new spare parts and they resell it through one of the auction websites or through various, they'll, they'll use charity, uh, through charities, etc. And what that does is, again, it gets, it gets that appliance, that another lease of life for another five plus years to people that, are dis, yeah, that haven't got the advantage of just being able to walk into a local high street retailer and go and spend £500 on a new all singing, all dancing washing machine. Mm -hmm. It does seem like a lot is changing um, at the moment. So we've got the inquiry into e-waste being conducted by the Environmental Audit Committee. Um, we've got the resources and waste strategy gradually being implemented, even though there have been so many delays um, and some agreements about what that will look like after after Brexit. So what, what's it like being a business operating in this context where how, how things are now might not be the same at all within three or five years? I think it's a very exciting time and it's good to see that government are you know, taking, taking it seriously. And, you know, we look at the right to repair and right to repair is a good start, but it still doesn't go far enough because the right to repair is still very much focused around the, the professional repairers effectively rather than the consumer. Um, so I think it's a, it's, a great, it's a great start. It's an exciting time to be uh, in this industry um, and it's pretty much the only industry I've known for the last 25 years. So I would describe it as the most exciting time, I think. Um, but I think there's still a long way to go with it. There is still a long way to go, but um, we know that these these things don't change overnight. And um, but it feels like we are on the on the curve of change. But for you, a right to repair means that consumers have to have support and a right to do that themselves without the need for software or or an expensive third party service. Absolutely, because yeah, for some people, yes, if they instigate getting a service engineer out and, and it costs £120 to repair a product, then that, that's fine. If that's within their remit, that's fine. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of people out there that that is an awful lot of money. And if they've just got a very, very basic competency with a screwdriver and um, our videos make it very, very, very easy in order to, um, yeah, to empower you to, to make that repair. Great. Well, thank you, Andrew, for your insight. I'm sure it will be really helpful whether people who are listening are at, at businesses that use a lot of electronics or if they're just sitting at home thinking, what am I meant to do with my washing machine? Perfect. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks once more to Andrew there. I feel like electronics and electricals are only going to be something that more and more of us will be thinking about 
because we're working remotely and using technology to stay in touch with our friends, our family and our connections at work. So it's only right that we consider the resource impact of these devices and technologies too. For this episode, we're just about out of time and I'd like to thank you all for joining me. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast, please do subscribe and follow to our podcast portfolio on SoundCloud, iTunes or Spotify. If you want to pitch to speak on a future episode, please drop us an email at newsdesk at fav-house.com. This podcast publishes twice a month and in September we're going to be bringing you special episodes to mark World Greens Buildings Week and to coincide with our new editorial campaign focusing on the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. So watch this space. Podcast aside, I'd like to remind everyone about ED's Sustainable Investment Digital Conference, which is taking place on the 7th and 8th of September. During this two-day event, we're going to hear from expert speakers from ING, BlackRock, BNP Paribas, and so many more organisations. So if you're working on green finance, this is not to be missed. You can check out the full agenda and register your interest for this online event at event.ed.net forward slash investor. For now, though, it's a goodbye from me and take care. Goodbye. <laughs>